everybody. Uh, welcome to Borough Talks, um, a series of hopefully inspiring discussions on food and food culture. I am Angela Clutton. I am a cook and a food writer and a historian, and I am your host of Borough Talks. Um, you can see we have lined up lots of our panellists ready to get going. Hello, ladies. Uh, regular Rachel Yasmin. Let's, uh, let's see you from your various cities around the world. Hi, Yasmin. Hi. Hello. Hi. Rachel, um, oh, this is so fun. <laughs> Let's go for regular. <laughs> we did see her for a second. We did, yes. Yeah. I'm sure regular's going to be with us any second. Let's start with some introductions to our panel, um, our global panel, which is really exciting. I'm um, going to kick off with uh, Rachel Roddy, um, award-winning food writer, um, a regular columnist for The Guardian, um, two books and a third one on its way very soon, I think, Rach. Is on slower, than, slower than predicted <laughs> and planned, and I can on its way. <laughs> my, my husband and I will be first in line to buy it because Rachel is the most um, cooked from food writer in our household um, and Rachel uh, lives in Rome. Um, Yasmin, lovely, lovely to see you. Um, Yasmin's first book came out, when was it out Yasmin, Keeping It Simple? Um, in January, early January. January, gorgeous book um, and a New York Times pick for the season as well. Yeah, so exciting. Congratulations. Um, you split your time, I think I'm right in saying, between London, LA and New York, but right now you're in, you're in New York. Whereabouts in New York are you, Yasmin? Um, I live in Tribeca, so like downtown, kind of where, um, yeah, the very bottom of the island. Okay. Um, and regular, oh, no, we can't see regular. No regular's gone. Oh, no. Okay. Well, let's not worry about that because I'm sure she will be back. Um, I'm sure that Borough Market are on the case sorting that out. So it's lunchtime here in London. Maybe a late lunchtime where you are, Rach? What is it, about two o'clock? Yes, yeah, just after two. Yeah, we're an hour ahead aren't and we yes and i'm so i've just had my lunch <laughs> <laughs> mine's just waiting yasmin it's breakfast time for you yeah yep i just had breakfast a few minutes ago <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, so what time is it in new york it's um a little after eight okay um so uh we are over the next 45 minutes an hour or so going to try and give you guys a snapshot view of what's been happening in our various cities um as we've all been experiencing covid and lockdown um, and we're going to think about things like food supply what people have been eating what people want to eat what people have been getting hold of hopefully expand out slightly to think about restaurants and cafes and shops where we all are as well so there's a lot to get through especially as we have you know quite a widespread um literally widespread panel so we're probably kind of go going to go quite fast we'll get through as much as we can and i think do questions at the end so i think regular is trying very hard to get in <laughs> i'm hoping she'll oh, look at it in before we I start think. properly she's trying it's so lovely to see you darling you're okay I'm okay. I got kicked out and then I didn't know what was happening. So yeah. I'm so right. sorry. Well, we are so happy to have you back. I've, all we have done so far is introductions for the other guys. So I'm going to do um, your introduction as well. So a uh, regular Eswin, and I've been fretting very much about saying your surname, so I still apologise. <laughs> um, author of six books? Uh, five. Five books. Oh. Okay. Um, and you, you know, a lot of your work focuses on the history of British puddings and the latest work. Oats in the North, Wheat in the South, absolute work of complete joy. And I should say, from a borough market point of view, um, Regular is also an amazing photographer. And the Market wow. Life magazine that the mark, um, that borough market do, so many of the pictures in there that make the magazine especially striking have been done by Regular. So um, very much um, a friend and family of borough market 
to. So um, I think I think we should kick off. And Rach, I'm going to begin with you, if you don't mind, because um, I think you know Italy being where certainly in Europe, you know, lockdown pressures first kicked in. And I have been I've been slightly dying to ask you about your local market because obviously we're doing this for Borough Market. I feel very close and connected to Borough, and I know you do with your local market. And so I'm sort of dying to hear how that experience has been for you with your market and what's been happening. Yeah, and it's a good sort of way to look at the whole COVID sort of experience. I feel like I'm counting backwards all the time. So Rome's actually just started opening up again um, on Monday in the sort of second part of phase two. Um, actually, the, the sort of best number for me is 70 days. So we were in sort of quarantena for 70 days. Um, and uh, so just over two months. So. Of course, in Rome, we were watching it all sort of unfold in the north. And then, of course, they shut down. I can't even remember what the dates were. I mean, I think it was the, on March the 14th when Rome was in quarantine. But the market remained open. And what was interesting is I live in a very particular part of Rome called Testaccio, which is central. It's shaped like a piece of cheese. It's a triangle. So it's quite geographically isolated, the sort of curve of the river and then a main street and then a city wall. So um, of course, everyone, like everyone all over the world, I've been sort of in Pestaccio at home most of the time. But then when I did go out to shop in this sort of contained area, and I mean, Pestaccio adapted quickly. I, you know, the, the announcements were made the night before. The next morning, the market was closed except for one door. They had put marking tape signs, marks on the floor to sort of signify a metre and a half. Um, they allowed 30 people in at a time in masks and gloves and um, and so and that was the same with the local bread shop and the local supermarket and I would say that the shop those local shops you know responded incredibly quickly and um, and effectively and have remained open I mean in the beginning it was it was absolutely surreal I mean we've all experienced this I mean I remember the first morning going out and sort of feeling as if I was going into this whole new terrifying world I mean suddenly the, the world was quite literally sort of marked off and Everyone was at a distance, which of course seems the sort of opposite of daily life in, in not just Rome, but you know, London or New York, a city of sort of bumping into each other and breathing over each other and touching each other. So it was very distressing. And, and there's a huge um, sort of high proportion of old people in Italy, full stop. But I mean, I'm particularly conscious of it in Testaccio. I, I would say 50% of the people I know live with an elderly relative. Our building, which is a sort of classic Rome mustard yellow five-story figure of eight block it's quite modern it's built at the turn of the century you know we've got a i think probably 70 percent of people who live here are are elderly and so there was a tangible sense of, of sort of fear but again translating that into sort of hope you know the local shops responded so you know my neighbor was let in first on her own in the shop you know she sat there and so that was a sort of positive experience. And, and then you get used to it quite quickly, don't you? But it was very, very surreal. And now, of course, you know, 70 days later, everything is opening up again, but the marks are still on the ground. Yeah. There is a lot of hand sanitizer. I mean, <laughs> everywhere you go, there is a pump dispenser. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, that's the new currency. You can come in my shop if you pump three times. It's very, <laughs> you know, so, that, so, um, so yes, the, mar and the markets existed. It's been, you know, it's been, it, it's been so nice to, and support. And some of the stallholders, my stallholder, Philippe, was away for a while, but he's back. You know, he's worked that market for 53 years. This is the first time he's ever been closed. But, um, but yes, it's been a, it, it's felt resilient. Um, 
Yeah. And I'm I, sorry, I've talked for far too long. And I've no, asked, no, 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 it's exactly what we wanted to hear, Rachel. And I feel very much with the borough market perspective. Unfortunately, I don't live near enough to go. The borough market has stayed open very much like your market, Rachel, I think. Um, you know, it stayed up, stayed open to serve produce to locals who you know, live or work nearby. So it's none of the, you know, stalls where you can go and hang out, but it's very much a doing projects. And I think, you know, from speaking to people, it has really mattered to the community that its local market has stayed open and been there through it. Um, and you know, we'll talk in a second, I think, about um, where people are getting their food from and supermarkets and things. But I, I feel what um, this experience has shown in, in, in London, but maybe this is because I'm so in love with borough market probably um i feel that the market and that kind of connection with produce and that more direct connection with traders has been very important yasmin for you in new york is there a is there a corollary there between it do, do you have a kind of local market that you would have this similar conversation about yeah so our green market um which kind of runs all the farmers markets in the city um have done a really incredible job of making them safe so i usually go to union square which is probably our biggest one um, yes. And then I think kind of like what Rachel was saying, a lot of people keep showing up, but then I think it took a little longer for us to get the, the mask and gloves down. Like that wasn't really required until a few weeks ago, but then, but the market did a really good job of making sure everyone was six feet apart, monitoring who went in, lots of hand sanitizer that was definitely on the way in, on the way out. Um, but it has been really great to support them as well. Yeah. And you do feel that connection of going there. And what we've also seen is um, a lot of retailers. So hugely supplied directly to restaurants. They've opened storefronts where consumers can now buy from them at really low wholesale costs. So it's also been nice to support them because obviously they're not supplying restaurants anymore. So I think there have been a lot of outlets for kind of making that connection at a time that feels very strange because like Rachel said, you know, I'm sure we all love grocery shopping, you know, being in that environment, but now it's, it's a little different. It's a little more strange wearing a mask, you know, staying six feet apart, you kind of lose that joyfulness of it. But I think there are new ways for it to be found, which has been really nice. I think that's a really, really good point. I think what struck me very early on was that food, which we all talk about so often as being such a great connector, mm -hmm. managed really quickly to find new ways of still doing yeah. that. Um, really and, nice. and even when we couldn't be together, food was still finding a way to kind of make people feel connected, which I think was sort of extraordinary. Um, we're running a poll at the moment about um, asking people where during lockdown they've been getting most of their food from. This is very exciting. Um, <laughs> the supermarket, you know, no great surprise, um, is in the lead, but only you know, just over half. Supermarket delivery is very low, 15%. Local market, pretty good, 24%. So about a quarter of people getting their food mainly from a local market, which is interesting given the conversation we've just been having. Specialist shops, that's um, doing uh, a lot of people there and a lot of people at farm shops. So there's a real spread. Supermarket is, you know, at the top, but there's a real spread as well. Regular, I'm curious, uh, you know, you're in Antwerp, um, which I think I may not have said at the beginning because it was uh, a rush getting you in. Everyone who missed it or I didn't say it, regular <laughs> is Antwerp. Um, that spread of places where people are getting their food from, is that something you recognise as being the, the Belgian Antwerp experience? Not at all. I'm very surprised to hear the situation in New York um, because our markets, our local markets have all been suspended and they are still opening up now. So we've been in lockdown since uh, March the 13th and we started easing lockdown last week. Now, just Monday, uh, schools opened up, uh, people went back to work, shops uh, were allowed to open and hospitality is allowed to open on the 8th of June if everything goes well. 
So um, the measures have been quite strict here. We were able to go outside as much as we wanted, keeping distance. We weren't um, masks and gloves. That's something that only came about last week. We started, um, we, we are now uh, bound to wear a mask only on public transport. Everywhere else is by choice, which I think is strange. Um, and there's always mixed information coming from uh, the virologists and everyone um, creating programs about is it effective, is it not effective to wear a mask, to wear gloves. There's never been very straight guidance uh, about the whole wearing a mask thing. Uh, so yeah, local markets all been closed. Not the markets stopped, that was it, they were shut, shut down. Completely. Yes, they were not allowed to trade. Uh, while, I mean, there would have been a possibility, first markets were back uh, this week with systems, with barriers, so nobody would uh, be able to, to gather uh, with other people too much. Um, there's, I think most people are getting their groceries from the supermarket right now, some smaller shops uh, as well, but I find a lot of people are trying to make do with what they had in the cupboard, um, not going out as much uh for for just small uh shopping items and um, there's the the box scheme thing is very big here right now you know the um, like you know i don't want to make advertising for them but <laughs> have a good do you mean, do you mean boxes? vegetable boxes or no, vegetable but the recipe boxes where you get produce and you get the vegetable uh, boxes yeah. which in a way has been um it's it's been great for a lot of people especially people key workers so that they don't have to go and do the shopping um, but yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a big shame that there wasn't more done for, uh, you know, local markets to, to mm. trade in a safe way because they are going to be massively affected by this, of course. Um, I, I, it's interesting you picked up on delivery there regularly because I really feel in the UK um, and certainly um, from my experience in London that delivery has become very important. Um, yeah, here it's been a very big problem because the whole thing of getting food delivered is not something that we culturally are already doing in Belgium. So that, that's very rare. So getting a delivery like you have with the Ocado and, and stuff, that's something very rare here. So I've tried at the beginning of lockdown, so I, I didn't leave the house for the first two weeks of lockdown and I tried getting a delivery slot. Like, you know, it's also a problem in the UK. But then when it arrived, it only had like one eighth of the grocery shopping that I actually, you know, ordered. And, and, and I ended up with 10 bags of kitty litter, but <laughs> no eggs and no milk. And well, we just saw your cat. So I guess at least you know, <laughs> happy. Rach, do you have, is, is there a delivery thing that happens around you in room? I was just thinking about that. I don't, I don't know how much, I mean, there certainly is delivery from supermarkets, but, but I mean, I, and I can't speak for the whole of Italy. Certainly, sort of Rome in the south. I think it's very, it's a very small proportion. I just don't think there's the infrastructure yet. Yeah. And I think, and I think again, my experience is not probably very reflective. It's quite particular in the sense that where I am in Rome is really, and again, I'm not trying to idealise it, but it's a very sort of villagey like place with lots of sort of shops, a market for everybody, a wonderful supermarket actually, a small supermarket that's absolutely sort of vital to people and also from the supermarket has been run the sort of shopping angels system which is where you you know there are shopping baskets at the end of the, at the beginning of every aisle and when you go shopping you can buy something to put in the baskets and that's then delivered to families or or people who need it 
So the supermarket has become a sort of hub That's in which for, you know, for families who need or, or key workers. So, um, you know, that's been, but again, on a sort of small scale, but yeah. no, it's been, actually it's been really interesting because of course there isn't, there isn't delivery here. So for example, I've got a high concentration of, we're going to talk about restaurants in a minute, but you know, all the local restaurants that shut that has been devastating for them. You know, Roman trattorias, so serving sort of classic Roman pastas, there is no real culture of delivery and it's not food that would ever work for delivery. So when they did open up for, for delivery, it, it was a sort of hopeless, unlike pizzerias, of course. But, um, but it's interesting, but, um, Rich, because I feel that, and picking up on something you said earlier, Yasmin, about um, people who supply restaurants and things, slightly switching what they do. So now, in terms of delivery, I think in the UK, and again, maybe this is slightly London-centric, although I think we're having people coming in commenting about other cities around the UK, um, saying the same thing that I'm about to say, that you have a lot of small producers and what would normally be considered, you know, very you know, niche, high-end producers who are now finding ways to deliver and get their produce out and so also you have you know people who would normally supply restaurants or things what you, you were saying Yasmin people who normally supply restaurants suddenly have all this you know cheese or vegetables or whatever and finding ways to pivot has become a big word <laughs> in supply here people are pivoting their business be able to directly get it to consumers is that what is that what you were saying Yasmin yep exactly we have a lot of people who have been doing that um I think Natura which is started in the UK, but I know they're now doing that direct to consumer here and not to get too far into restaurants, but we've seen a lot of restaurants pivot as well in that direction where they're kind of these pop-up retail stores. So all the stuff that they're usually sourcing for their restaurants are now selling to consumers like olive oil, flowers, even um, meal kits to make at home. So it has been really interesting to see how people have become creative and finding ways to reach customers, even if it's not uh, traditional ways, but Delivery is like very huge in New York. I mean, it always has been. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, so I think it's a very much a delivery city. Like, I think people right. really love to cook or absolutely never cook and get everything delivered. So um, I think that's been big. And we have Instacart, which has um, been very huge. And I think, like you said, like Ocado, it's very difficult to get a slot. So um, yeah, I think that's been a large part of it for people. Yeah. I think it's been, it's been fascinating to me to see how delivery of small producers has become such such a big thing yeah. um, and part of it I think is a little bit of um, a response to frankly the kind of panic buying that happened over here when it when the lockdown was sort of just beginning and I'd love to know whether or not there was that kind of food supermarket panic buying yeah. <laughs> Let, regularly, let's start with you in Antwerp was there but were people dashing to the supermarkets to like buy up loads of stuff yeah, when they announced that there was going to be a lockdown from the next day, people, of course, went to the supermarkets and all the aisles were empty and all, uh, all the vegetables were gone. And I didn't go myself, but there were, of course, these images on the television, which I think are very disturbing in this whole Corona uh, business that the television and the news, they have played a very big part in all the panic and 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 you know once they said here in belgium that it was it's it's, it's a big problem to get mozzarella the next day all the mozzarella sold out because everyone then wanted mozzarella so it, it, it's the, the the how they portray things had a very big impact on on our on our system as well um but I, I think it's very sad and strange that our small producers didn't really make the effort of actually creating deliveries. So there were some um, 
like food box schemes who included things from small producers, but I can see from Holland, which is very you know close to us because we speak the same language, that immediately there were these initiatives of creating a, a box from a certain area of the country with all the small little um, uh, things that were uniquely from that area, and and that really didn't have happen in in Belgium. Wow. It, it's almost like uh, it's it's not universal, but almost like most people kind of sat back and waited. Also because our government uh, very quickly announced that there was going to be help, financial help. So a lot of people were like, okay, but how is it gonna work? And if we continue trading and if we offer delivery of all that kind of st stuff, are we going to get the help then? Because we remain in business, in fact. Mm. Well. So that was a big change and it was only after two weeks of lockdown that businesses started to anticipate because nobody believed it was going to be a thing. So the first two weeks, everyone was still thinking because lockdown initially was set here to be just for two weeks. They were like, oh, it'll be over in two weeks. But then suddenly it became clear it wasn't. Yeah. And then they had to start uh, anticipate. And for example, uh, uh, breweries uh, offering delivery. Uh, so they are doing this as well. Uh, they are doing this, um, uh, not all of them, but the new, the young breweries are offering delivery, not the old school mm -hmm. breweries, because they're still like, you know, you come to the shop and you buy it there. Yeah. Uh, of course, we're a very small country. Uh, which is of a big difference, of course, is you don't have to travel a distance to go to a shop or to go to a market. You, you stumble outside and you're into a shop. So uh, like, well, like what, what, what Rachel was saying, uh, one of my best friends, she lives in the Tuscan countryside. And what she uh, experienced is that, uh, a lot, that she got to know a lot of very local, very small producers through lockdown because she didn't want to go to the supermarket. And... Um, and she couldn't make it as well and they came to her so they were delivery delivering everything to her so in the countryside it's different again because they have to drive the distance to actually make a sale so yeah it's a very difficult i mean you know it's still in the uk you hear people saying they can't get flour they can't get yeast yeah but that's a different issue isn't it uh, we have the same problem no flour no yeast right. but that's the problem with filling out the the tiny bags which are oh. a convenience thing um if you if you look for bags five kilo ten kilo 25 kilograms it's no problem because that's a bigger market for the mills to yeah. fill out but it's the small bags especially companies own brands yeah tiny bags. I and, Rachel, and, is there a flour issue in italy in rome I think there was, excuse, yeah, because I'm just it's sort of making me think about, there wasn't, um, not so much in Rome. I mean, there was certainly panic, panic buying. There was certainly, you know, people did, there were sort of pictures of empty supermarket shelves in the north of Italy. And, um, and yeah, I mean, there was a point a few days when we couldn't um, get yeast in locally. But then actually two days later, suddenly every market store was, started, it was supplying sort of butter-sized packs of yeast. It's sort of making you, isn't it, it's making, um, that, that's been the sort of hopeful aspect of it, seeing the way that people are sort of quickly adapting um, to sort of different thinking differently. Like you said, regular about, about people buying, you know, suddenly going back to buying larger bags of flour. Um, I think the interesting thing, again, about being here and having small local shops, which I don't think are appreciated in the way they should be. I don't want to idealise, you know, Testaccio market. I mean, most of my storeholders tell me that 
you know, every day one of their customers dies and, you know, their daughter doesn't come to the market. So, you know, I think there's been a re, I hope that this sort of rediscovery of the market, that's not to say that a lot of people don't use the market, they do, it's a wonderful market, but, you know, dependency on local shops and, of course, Again, taking the bread shop and our little local supermarket, you know, they policed people. Like, there was no panic buying in the supermarket because they wouldn't let you. They were sort of shouting across the aisle, <laughs> you know, and saying no. Um, yeah, well, I think, I think, yeah, I think, you know, again, you know, I don't, again, this is just here, and it, 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 there have been lots of really impossibly difficult things, but, you know, this sense of sort of knowing people and sort of being conscious of sort of what everyone else is doing, and this, that has, did bring out the best in some ways in people, sort of consciousness. And again, as I say, people were not allowed to, in the supermarket they were trying to, there's a, um, there's a to brand of toilet roll called Corona, which, um, and, uh, and it, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't quick enough with my phone, but it was a video, you know, the, the supermarket staff was stopping people, you know, buying, buying too many bags of toilet roll, sort of saying, we're not going anywhere, we'll be here tomorrow. Yeah. So, um, Yasmin, was there a kind of that sort of, thing happening where you were? Did you see much of that? Um, yeah, there's a lot of panic buying. I was actually um, on book tour. So I was in Los Angeles, maybe early March, and I was also developing a recipe. So I had to go to three different grocery stores to find coconut milk because the middle aisles of the supermarket were cleaned out, like all the canned beans. And this was kind of a little before we thought it was going to be what it was, or still no one really knew how big of a deal it was. So in my mind, I was like, oh my gosh, people are panicking. Like, what are they doing? And then when I came back to New York, like all the center aisles of all supermarkets were cleaned out. Like it almost looked like they were just moving into the grocery store. It was really crazy. And there was no um, kind of limiting of how much toilet paper you would buy. Like that was all gone. I think some of the smaller grocers did that. Like now you see signs of like two rolls per person, which has been good. So now everyone can kind of access it versus doing it. Cause I was actually out of toilet paper cause I had been traveling. So I came back and I was like, I'm not trying to hoard. I just really do need toilet paper. So. <laughs> it felt pretty hard being a food writer at this time. Cause I was already yeah. also uh, recipe testing for a book and I needed lots of stuff for recipe testing, yeah. book, but also privately. And I had this big cart and, and I could hear people whispering behind me. You think she's hoarding? You should think she's buying. <laughs> and I wanted to say like, <gasps> No, I'm not. I'm, not, I'm not. I need all these kind of things. And look, it's really weird. I've got like 20 packs of, of, of mushrooms. It's not for private use. I mean, because right. I, I need to make loads of mushroom soup. Um, so yeah, it, it, but it, it, it started quite late here, the panic buying as well, because people just didn't believe it. And Belgian people are quite, you know, relaxed uh, most of the time. And, and even then, it, the things like you say, like beans, they didn't flow off the shelves. I think oh, really? people here, they... they continued to just buy and, and trust um, the system. And there wasn't a lot of disruption apart from, from uh, flour and, and yeast. Um, it's interesting, just, so we've been doing, oh, sorry, sorry, regular, we've been doing a little poll, another poll, we do love, we do love, we do love a poll, talks. <laughs> um, and our poll is about asking people what um, food they've had difficulty in getting. And um, many, many people have voted in this poll. Um, flour storming ahead. Um, Eighty percent of people have said they've had a problem getting flour, and and I'm sort of dying also to ask these people whether they would normally have flour and use it in their cupboards. Like, I'm very um, anxious, I suppose, worried about the degree to which people are buying things and they're not really 
using them but that's a whole that's a whole other episode yeah. of effects um yeast you know a lot of people saying about yeast and again i have similar thing about um yeast i really hope that people are really are using um but beans which you guys have been mentioning um nearly 20 percent of people saying they have trouble getting getting beans wow. um but but but, but the, the mozzarella issue seems quite niche regular i've seen tin tomatoes yeah but it's interesting, you know, about how different countries and different cities have different yeah. experiences, different continents have mm. different experiences of what the issues are. Yeah, the mozzarella, I would never have thought of that. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. And so, also, you have to take into account that we in Belgium, we are in the centre of Europe. So every lorry drives past where we are. So we have a very good system of supply. We, every supermarket, they said, would basically calm us down in the first week that every supermarket is getting three lorries of supplies instead of the one lorry every, every few days. So that's a lot. Yeah. So we didn't have a lot of shortages apart from the flour and the yeast, which is just mainly a packaging problem, not yeah. a supply for problem. For sure. And it's going to be very interesting moving forward to see what happens now about the harvests and you know, the impact about the, the new season. Mm. What I love seeing is that after a couple of weeks, um, all the brand, uh, the, the regular brands of flour disappeared, of course, from the shelves. But suddenly there were bags of flour, organic flour from mills here in Belgium and in Holland and five kilograms, 10 kilograms. And they started to appear in the shelves, which I think is great because it's a supermarket. They usually that kind of flour, you have to go to the organic shop or a small independent shop. But now it was on the regular supermarket shelf. So I hope that will be a lasting thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, oh, we've got another poll going. It's very exciting, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> about use of flour. My, my comment about use of flour has been taken, okay. taken seriously. Now, now a poll. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, there is, there is a, a building concern here in the UK about um, basically the picking of summer produce. Oh, yeah. Um, and just who, who will do it and how will it happen and the potential wastage and the potential difficulties in getting produce to people. Um, Rachel, maybe, is that something which is uh, coming across as a concern in Italy as well that you're aware of? Yes, I think it is a concern in the South, obviously, right. because the, the, you know, the, the sort of summer labour that's, you know, so vital. Um, and, uh, you know, Italian and, and, uh, and non-Italian. So, yes, I think it is going to be tricky. And as I was going to say, again, you know, my experience in this quite sort of small you know, the local, the market and the local supermarket. So just going back to that thing about, um, about brands of, um, of flour, same here. Yes, the supermarket, because they did, they rose to every challenge. I mean, there was a, there was a dip in having flour. And then yes, there's about 15 brands of flour now coming from Lazio and these smaller mills. So it'll be interesting to see how sort of demand it changes supply. So there's an interesting sort of supply chain in the supermarket here and at the market. But um, two fruit and veg guys I go to, they, you know, they have their own land and they take them they bring things into the market but the sort of greater supply chain is, is going to be a huge challenge this summer um and of course every you know having had very clear-cut i felt advice from the government about quarantena and staying at home you know i think that you know in italy there was no doubt i mean and people just responded to that that instruction and they did and people stayed at home mm -hmm. and you know now of course we've got very complicated advice about Italy opening up and as opposed to it being national advice every region 
um, can make decisions about when they open their borders and movement between borders. And and I'm obviously I'm looking at that from a sort of per personal point of view, but of course it must be the same with produce travelling. So, you know, uh, the sort of implications of that are a little bit like when will I see my parents? The sort of domestic to the global, like yeah. you know, these supply chains are terrifying. And of course, I suppose you know the sort of malavita, the you know the sort of corrupted side of food production production obviously can only have been getting powerful um i wish i was a bolder writer and sort of dared to investigate more but you know that but my intenders from sicily the very south his grandparents were tomato farmers and they're not farmers anymore but you know that's a sort of historically difficult you know difficult world yeah, difficult world. I've just been reading Tim Lang's um, latest book, which is all about um, British food supply and about the issues, the problems, the concerns about where our food policy is or isn't, and about the supply and food security and all of those things. And I think as we move through this, because obviously, we, as we all know, this is not ending anytime soon, and the food pressures will evolve. They'll you know, they'll change from just sweeping supermarket shelves into actually you. Know, as we're saying about you know, the farming and really getting the produce in and I think that there's so many issues there to look at. Yasmin you were nodding furiously or, or you're nodding, not furiously not angrily you no, were nodding passionately when yeah. Rachel was talking. Uh, why, why are you nodding so emphatically? Um, no I think what you were saying um, is echoing a lot in the United States in terms of how things are opening in different times so like maybe 30 of our states are opening right now but New York isn't so it's very confusing um, but I like you were saying also I think that highlights some of the negative aspects of our food industry, our food policy, like how our food is grown and who it's given to. And so, um, yeah, I think it's showing the good and the bad at this point, like we were saying, you know, people are supporting their local food systems, but also you're seeing how things aren't working as well as an overall country. So I do have hope at the end of this, like people appreciate more our food system, where it comes from, how it's grown and like our general earth, because I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but New York City is like clean, like the air is beautiful. Like I hear birds all the time. Like I have never heard birds from my apartment in New York and it's just so beautiful. And so I know it's sad because our vibrant like bustle, like hustle bustle city isn't what it is, but there are some positives coming out of it. So I hope we can hold on to that as well, you know? Let's talk about the hustle bustle because we've touched on it and a lot of people who are watching us um, are also touching on it on the chat about uh, restaurants, cafes, those aspects of things. And I think you know, a lot of us, we will know people who have businesses, whose businesses are um, under threat or challenged, or you know, there's certainly an awful lot of people to navigate. Um, Yasmin, you, you brought up the hustle and bustle, so I think let's start. Can you just give us a little bit of an insight into the uh, restaurant, cafe kind of mood where you are? Um, I think it's very unknown. I mean, I think um, our government hasn't been quite the best at supporting like our smaller independent restaurants. I know people are doing a lot of great work to try and change that and support them. But I think it is very unknown because New York may not open for another month and it would just be at a very early phase of like a limited um, number of diners, which would be really difficult for restaurants to kind of operate that and making that little amount of money. And even if they had patio dining six feet apart, I mean, New York restaurants, like I'm sure where you guys are too, are tiny, like some are not massive. So six feet apart would just be one couple outside. And that doesn't really make sense. So and I think we're starting to hear restaurants closing or bars not coming back, which really is making a hit it's home. A little bit. Yeah, there's been a few big ones. And one of my favorite cocktail bars and just that's when it really um, hits. We're like, oh, wow, it definitely will be a completely different landscape than when we left. So even 
when it does come back, it won't look like how it was. But I mean, New York is a resilient city and they've been through a lot. So I do think it will come back. But it is strange to have a city that you love and bars and restaurants and cafes are such a huge part of that. And it's, it's hard to see it's so quiet and those windows shuttered or boarded up. So yeah, it's hot. It's heartbreaking. Regla, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, how you feel about that for Antwerp, but maybe if you can kind of broaden out um, for wider across Belgium? Yeah, so I think the situation here is is different. So as I said in the beginning, the first two weeks, nobody was open. There were some shops that were selling their stocks like a little grocery shop, but then they all closed down and they saw it's not going to end anytime soon. They anticipated uh, Uber Eats and Deliveroo widened the range of delivery while before I couldn't get delivery while I'm in the city, I can get it now. And uh, interestingly, I'm not going to say this is the case for all restaurants, but it's a very different picture here because a lot of restaurants are actually earning more now than they were when they were running a regular uh, restaurant because they, 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 they are doing this with often less staff and um, people are coming to get the food. They can also buy the wine and the beer and the people are actually doing it because they know that hospitality uh, uh, drinks are very um, uh, important to the sales, so they're buying what they would actually drink and eat at the restaurant, taking it all home. And um, so friends of mine, they have a business and uh, they started doing pizzas and they are selling much more pizzas than they would on a normal night, on a takeout night. And um, they actually decided not to open up again after Corona and remain as a takeaway Wow. Place because they said it, it's much less hassle. We can sell much more. People are still happy. So, so why would we return to this, you know, situation where we, where we have tables and we have to wait on them and where we have much more staff serving. So, so that's a very interesting thing. Um, it was said on the television here in, um, in a debate as well in Belgium that there are, there are a lot of hospitality businesses who, who are doing actually great so there are, of course, a lot of them are, are completely closed and it, it's going to be very hard for them. But I think it's now the people, the businesses who weren't in trouble already and the people who have a fighting instinct, I think will come out of this quite all right here in Belgium. We also have this big uh, thing on, on Saturday, the big build bistro, it's called, I don't know how to translate, big, big neighborhood bistro. So we're all like saying, you know, order on Saturday from your favorite restaurant and share, you know, all the tags on social media of that restaurant to basically spread the word about all the restaurants who are doing a takeaway. Um, so there's lots of small initiatives to, to help um, the hospitality industry here. Regular, but forgive me if you said this. Um, did you say um, when restaurants are likely to be able to open? Do you know that? Yes. So right now it's 8th of June. Okay. Until further notice, it's going to be 8th of June. Yeah. Which is very soon. So do you... Yeah, but we've been in lockdown much earlier. So we've been in lockdown since the 13th of March. So do you know to what degree people are who are planning to reopen are thinking about just how their restaurant will, will function with social distancing? Um, I haven't heard that much uh, negative about it. I think um, Belgian people, again, they're very relaxed and very, you know, uh, they pliable, if, if that's a, a word. So they go like, you know, we'll make it work. If, if it has to be like this, then we'll do it like that. And, and you know, it, we have to 
it just you have to just make it work there's no other way so you can moan about it or you can get on with it basically because <laughs> Rach yeah you're saying Rome's you know, restaurants have reopened yes this uh yeah Monday okay. or, or can this week tell us it was earlier which was um, earlier than anticipated I think originally it was going to be the first of June and of course it is a bit a sort of tale of two cities because of course the center um I mean it must be devastating restaurants in the, the center is there is nobody in the centre of Rome, which is quite extraordinary. Um, I mean, I've never, I don't think Rome has been like this for sort of 60 years. I mean, there's, it, there are ducks, there are sort of ducks wandering around Piazza del Popolo. It is good, but it's also, it's also profoundly sad, especially when you see all those sort of, the, the restaurants in the centre that work for tourists, because there are no tourists. So I, I don't know whether they, you know, it certainly won't reopen now. And I think it will probably be the end for a lot of them. I, and I'm sort of, I, I sat with, we have a, there's a lot of restaurants in Testaccio and they're mostly family run. They're mostly trattorias serving very traditional Roman food. So actually food that you actually probably would cook quite similar food at home. You actually go out to eat a matriciano or carbonara. You go to have a tablecloth and a litre of wine and toothpicks and a sort of waiter that's a bit grumpy. You know, you, you so actually that, so, you know, they were never going to translate into home delivery anyway. Um, although it's in saying that some restaurants have adapted, they've been, um, you know, with, with sort of adapting their food, a couple of pasta restaurants selling, you know, um, and, you know, ready-made pasta to be cooked at home. Pizzerias are sort of adapting into a new way of working. Bars were, the, at the front, were first off. I mean, bars were brilliant. Most bars are small. They had a table in the doorway. Now people can go in three at a time. You know, that's where you've seen sort of new ways of gathering. Um, Italians sort of gathering at a distance around the bar, like a sort of like, you know, mushroom around it. But trattorias, um, you know, break my heart. I sat with Andrea, who owns the local restaurant, and we walked around his um, trattoria. They've got 108 covers. And so if they do a metre and a half distance, they can have between 40 and 50 inside. But he said that most of their customers are elderly, so they won't come. And um, the small proportion of tourists won't come. They have some tables outside, which they're hoping that they can find a new way um, of sort of working with. But, you know, I could have wept at that meeting with him because I'm sentimental. But actually, as I left, he sort of said, but we will make it work. You know, we've been doing this for 2,000 years. We will make it work. So being sort of buffeted between despair and hope. Um, I feel very similarly about London. You know, there are so many places I love and people I love who have them, who it's hard to imagine being able to survive, really, if the amount of covers they can do is halved. Right. Um, and also the whole experience is, you know, very different. And yet um, people will, I'm sure, you know, be creative and imaginative and hopefully find ways to make it work. But at this point, when we, you know, in London, UK, we have we have no real idea when restaurants will be allowed to open the prime minister banned his dates around but because we're <coughs> excuse me still you know quite early in testing all those things those dates don't necessarily feel to the industry as being that set in stone in the way that you know, regularly you're talking about you know dates and that that do feel quite soon or, or you know, even in rome which are already doing it so i think you know for the restaurant industry here there's still a lot there's an awful lot to still be kind of considered and worked out about just how the social distancing will work on the tables but also obviously in the kitchens and also with the waiting staff and it will work they won't it if, if the government supports it i mean that's what andrea said i mean andrea says that at 50 percent with tables outside with a sort of you know plastic menus and masks taken down when you eat your plate of pasta but he says it will work because people want to come and eat like there was a great there was a huge desire 
a desperation to be sitting back at tables with each other. However it is, it will happen if the government need to, the Italian government have not been, been sort of, you know, true to their promise. I think you're really I right. You know, I am. I, I love to cook. You know, we all we all love to cook. I'm sure. But I am absolutely desperate to have a menu. I'm desperate to have a menu and choose something which somebody else is going to cook. And it's not that I'm fed up of cooking. I just really, you know, there's a couple of places which I am just desperate to get yeah. to. I have my whole first evening planned of where I'm going to go for a cocktail, <laughs> where I'm going to go for dinner, and maybe a little sneaky drink afterwards. Like I have the whole thing sorted because I'm just desperate to get back to it. Before we plow on guys, I'm just going to say to everyone who's watching, we're getting close to the point of taking in questions. So if people have any questions they would like to ask, which can be about all the issues we're talking about, but also if you are a particular fan of any of these wonderful cooks and writers and have a question you'd like to ask more broadly about their work, now is the moment to start typing in, start typing in your questions. Um, and we'll get to those in a second. But I, you know, I love Rachel, you pulled me back there and you're quite right, because I was feeling a bit desperate you pull me back into being more positive about it and you <laughs> and you are quite right that yeah. you know people who are you know, who are creatively minded and driven and god knows you've got to be those things to have a restaurant to start with will you know hopefully yeah. not everybody yeah. i'm sure uh, desperately so but people people will you know come forward and make it work and i guess we have to have that hope at this point that that will be that will be true yeah, yeah. it's also a big thing that you guys are all in, in areas where there's a lot of tourism and uh, Antwerp has tourism, but not to the extent of Rome or New York or London. So our, our, our restaurant scene is still quite small. And, and if you look at covers per people who live here in the city, they can make it work with just the people who live here, which is, which is not the case where, where you guys are. You really do need the tourism uh, to, 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 to get all uh, that you that you need to pay your rent and that's another thing I think is very important that that needs to be looked at by governments and by local councils as well which is the rent that is sh charged for for, um, for restaurant businesses because especially in London it's, it's just sky high and anyway, yeah. it was already dropping at Jamie Oliver's restaurants closing so many others because they just can't uh, cough up the, the rent anymore. So there's a very much bigger issue than just the food and the social distancing. It's also the crippling rents. Yeah, yeah, yeah rents. So, so yeah. glad you said that, darling, regular because yeah. that is massive issue here in London. Yeah. And we have, you know, some uh, very prominent um, restaurateurs and food writers who are really kind of going for it, trying to kind of get those issues dealt with. But I'm really glad you mentioned that because that is a very, very, very important point. Um, we have uh, we have some lovely questions coming in. <laughs> uh, so this is a question for all of you. So maybe we will whiz round. Um, people are keen to know how do you think. COVID-19 will change how or what you write about food. Yasmin, let's go. Oh. Do you mind if I go to you? Yeah. That, that's really landing you in it, isn't it? Yeah, no, no. Um, sorry. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, no, I think, um, well, I guess I would say in terms of recipes, I think it's really important to have a lot of substitutions now. So even ones that I've worked on since the beginning of this, it's always like, well, what can you do if you don't have X, Y, and Z? Um, and so I think it's making things more adaptable. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think that'll be one way. I guess that's a very small scale way. No, in terms no, no, of I think that's brilliant. I think that's giving people, do you mean giving people options in a recipe? If you don't have this, use that. Exactly. Just, I think right now, not everyone has access to everything. So just making sure people are more adaptable, yeah. um, or recipes are more adaptable. Rach, do you have any thoughts about how your work might be impacted? 
Yeah, well, it's been interesting writing, hasn't it, being, being a food writer at this time? Because, of course, everyone's at home cooking and, and, uh, and you can feel it, can't you? You can sort of sense it. Um, and also, because we do communicate so much online and through Instagram and Twitter and you know what people are cooking, it's been a sort of, it has been a real sort of feel of feeling of camaraderie and, you know, especially on Instagram. So I think I've just been aware of being, of sort of being, a sort of trying to trying to be a better communicator and sort of having a conversation because you can see what people are cooking and I've just felt that, that there's sort of been a return to to sort of good home cooking I mean things which are I don't know that sounds so naff I, I feel I've that, that I've not chosen my words right but I, you know there's this great sense of of that people are cooking to feed families and and um and of course three meals a day I mean I'm a food writer but I found it absolute hell I mean, you know, I would like to say I've learned some great lessons about being in quarantine with my son and my partner, but I've really just learned yeah, that I love, I love not being with them. I love, <laughs> love not being with them. That is my big lesson. Because <laughs> you know, a lot of your work is based on historical work regulars. So I'm curious as to how you feel um, your work will or won't be impacted by COVID-19. Uh so um, uh, I think I will, because I, I write a lot about baking and the history of baking. Um, and what I've been doing through, through lockdown is that I've been adapting my recipes for people to bake at home, but in a way that it doesn't involve too much time from them. So I've created these overnight buns, which are hugely popular, where you can just, before you go to bed, lazily just mix the dough and set it aside, just using a tiny amount of yeast. And in the morning when you wake up, it's ready to shape and then after an hour, ready to bake. And people are loving it because they're at wit's end. They often don't have a bakery closed or they don't want to go to, to, to a bakery. They don't want to go out. They want to bake themselves. And it's to make, give the alternative in recipes to uh, do it like, you know, rising for one hour using 50 grams, 15 grams of yeast and doing it overnight using only half a teaspoon of yeast. So I think that's something I will include in my recipes. Of course, because it's, a lot of uh, uh, most, mostly about food history that I write. I will look for recipes in history that have uh, dealt with uh, food shortages, like yeah. I did for a market last week for VE Day, working uh, with uh, potatoes and carrots instead of flour and sugar. Yeah. Uh, so I will keep an eye, more an eye on these types of recipes. While I've already done it, already included these types of recipes in my books, I, I think I will have an extra eye out for them as well. That's a very good point. We have so many questions coming in, guys. I might <laughs> ask you to answer some of these afterwards. Um, so, Rachel, I think you're going to love this one. Where's this, Rachel? Right, Rachel, question, question for you, Rachel. Uh, somebody says, oh no, it's disappeared. My 13 year old son has been enjoying cooking in lockdown. Not mine, this is a person's. Can you recommend a simple Italian recipe that he could make? what I've really actually it's lovely hearing all of you and thinking like thinking through about so what I've really been enjoying making is sort of uh, piadine, the, the flatbeds from Emilia Romagna which are really there are versions of them all over the world but Megla thinking with you yes these sort of it's just flour and and water and olive oil and baking powder and so you and uh, sorry not baking powder bicarbonate soda and they're sort of you know flatbreads that you cook in a frying pan and I've I've never made them before. I've absolutely loved making those in lockdown. And of course, the lovely thing about writing a column is that, and having it sort of live, is that you see that people people have enjoyed making those piadine. So they're a, um, I'll happily send um, an email with the recipe. Um, 
Yeah, me too. Yeah. Regular, we're getting a lot of love for your overnight buns. People are that oh, there's yeah. <laughs> much we're getting, enthusiasm. Can I say where it is? Can I say where it is? It's not <laughs> It's not in any of my books. It's one of the recipes I've been putting on my Instagram just, you know, for everyone to use. It's in my Instagram highlights under Easy Bakes. And there you'll find overnight buns and, you know, those breakfast bun things that you can also make overnight. So everything's just super easy. And in the morning, you can just, you know, enjoy <laughs> serving it to your family and, and enjoy it. I think, I think we have many, many people watching this who are going to be doing overnight buns tonight. <laughs> Um, Yasmin, um, one for you. Is there anything you've been cooking at the moment that you're finding particularly soothing or calming if you feel that you need that? Yeah, no. Um, I'll say during like the first couple of weeks, I was making a lot of roast chickens. Um, actually, Patricia Neven that we both know started this great Instagram account called The Chicken Soup Project. So everyone shares um, a chicken soup that's like dear to their heart or anything at all and shares a little bit of a story. So for a couple of weeks, I was roasting, or a few weeks, I was roasting chickens, making stock and turning that into different meals and using that account kind of as inspiration. So I found that very comforting and warming and you can freeze it. And I'm also cooking for one. So I had to balance all of that out. So that was been something that's been great. Yeah, I've, I've been enjoying roast chicken too, I have to say. Um, Rachel, another one for you from um, Elizabeth Luard, no less. Whose book is perfect <laughs> the perfect book the book i didn't know i was waiting for elizabeth yes because i've made your strawberry cordial your roasted chickpeas and your <laughs> spanish green soup in the last three days so elizabeth wants to know darling is there a favorite spring dish that you've been cooking at home at the moment yes uh, i um i make a lot in rome there's um a dish called um vignarola which is a sort of spring vegetable collision of peas and broad beans and um onion and artichoke and sometimes lettuce and I make I, I make a lot I make a lot of that but I've also um I've also been cooking a lot with um pulses these and uh and then a huge amount of pasta I always make a pasta with peas and greens and but I mean we always eat a lot of we always eat a lot of um a lot of pasta it has been not it has been nice in um in in lockdown the I mean, I've missed going out, but there's also been something quite nice about actually knowing that you don't have to sort of worry about making plans because you're just going to stay in and go to bed. <laughs> so it has been nice, not all the time, because as a mum of a small child, I found cooking very stressful, actually, and three meals a day. And I've lots of days I've not wanted to cook, but I have a lot of continuity. The sort of thought, well, I will just sort of leave that overnight or, or sort yeah. of, you know, Elizabeth's strawberry cordial where you soak strawberries in sugar three days you know I loved it, it I, I felt I sort of had that time and that's been a really nice payoff of what I found to be a really really challenging quarantine um which has tested my sort of relationship my role as a mother my role as a friend <laughs> okay, okay I think I think we need, we need to move on from that before it becomes a therapy session for Rachel yeah um, <laughs> anybody um we have we have so many questions but not sadly I don't think we're going to get through them all um do any of you have any recommendations of interesting food reads for people while they're stuck at home in lockdown? Food reads? Yeah, books oh. or recipe like books. books. Uh, well, food books, obviously. Um, but anything you'd recommend for people to be able to kind of dive into in this period? Hmm. I'm going to say I've just finished Tim Lang's book and it's a bit of a heavy read. 
um but it is which has really put people off already hasn't it but it's not that heavy it's just it's really <laughs> really um fascinating and quite an important book if that isn't too ridiculous a thing to say and i have been absolutely loving it so for anyone who's interested in food policy issues i would definitely recommend that anyone got anything a bit more fun um, I, was enjoy I enjoyed Ruby. I've only read Ruby and um, Ruby Tando's. I've really enjoyed her writing through the sort of whole of lockdown. And also, um, and also um, the Longstroke memoirs, again, I reread Yanisi, which is beautiful about Nigerian food. So I've enjoyed those both again. I've reread a lot of things in lockdown, actually. Yeah. Anything you'd recommend, Rach, particularly? That's going to say Ruby Tando and Yanisi okay. and about it, the Longstroke memoirs, which are absolutely beautiful. Yasmin, anything that you've been reading that you'd recommend or yeah. you just generally recommend to people as a nice food read? Yeah, like Rachel was saying, I've been reading through my old books, so like MFK Fisher's books and Elizabeth David, so more like kind of um, older food writing, which has been really nice and a good little bit of escape too. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, buying new books from, from authors is very important because we've all not have our book launches and, and book tours and stuff. But um, yeah, I'm mostly with my nose in old books, especially for, you know, historical food research. So so don't forget the old books either. I like to just pick up, you know, yeah. the old and tatty copies as well and, and discover things there. And also historical cookbooks because we can learn so much from history and now you know, the, the wartime cookery books are very interesting as well, uh, learning to deal with shortages. Uh, so yeah, it's so many things, but just, yeah, good balance in new books and, and, and old. I think that's really right. And I think if people yeah. are stuck at home and maybe a little bit over the cooking, um, yeah. it's a good opportunity to be able to kind of dive into these books that maybe, you know, we all do it, you know, shelves and shelves and shelves of books that you don't necessarily always really have the time to just immerse yourself mm. into. Um, I think we have to, we have to leave it because it's too no. I know, I know, I know. And, uh, <laughs> 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 I'm torn between us carrying on or us actually sticking on schedule because um, there is a lot of love. Um, and it really feels that people have found this very interesting and inspiring and I certainly have and I have really had what I hoped it would be a snapshot into you know, what's happening in, in your respective places and, and the similarities and the and the differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah definitely there's it. definitely still a conversation needed especially I think about uh, food yeah. import and export which is uh, something we hadn't, haven't talked about, maybe planned to talk about, that it, it is a very dangerous situation. It's, it's situations if people, if countries are uh, becoming uh, more about, you know, keeping the produce in their own country, while this is very idyllic to buy local and to buy yeah. your produce from your own country, we have to take into account, I have a, a number here, that only the port of Antwerp here in, 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 in Antwerp, basically, is 6.5% uh, of employment in Belgium, which is huge. And that's import and export. If that drops, then you have a huge economical problem. So it, we have to continue to have a good balance between importing and exporting and, and of course, supporting small businesses, but not keeping all the produce in the country, still trading because yeah. it's important for our economy, because otherwise if that drops, then there will be a very big problem, I think. 
I think you really, you know, that, that's a really good point to end on, I think, because you know, there are these issues which we're all going to have to continue to explore and talk about. And I hope the conversations like this will get people thinking about these issues and thinking about how they relate to food production in their own country and the kind of food they choose you know, to eat and buy and, and uh, just their relationship to food, I suppose. Um, ladies, huge thanks. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You are appreciated. Enormous, enormous fun and, and enormously interesting and really to everybody who has watched and joined in and done a poll and sent questions. <laughs> Really, thank you for listening thank for our talk. Um, next week, we have um, Sammy Tamimi and Tara Wrigley who are talking to um, us about Falestin, which is an amazing new book. So that's Wednesday um, at one o'clock, same time. Um, I really hope you enjoyed today and found it what we hope it to be, um, an inspiring installment of our food culture series. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks very bye, much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye, so nice to meet you all. Yeah. <laughs> so lovely. Bye. 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 <laughs>